0: Thank you. I hope you didn't think that I did something horrible to your parents or what so that you insulted me with all those titles, big titles. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Thank you. Uh, first, I will brutally use my privilege in a totally unfair way to answer, to first connect with the debate. No? So I, I have you now in a totally impotent position. I can talk, you cannot answer. I like this, you know. <laughs> Because I like dialogues. But as an arrogant philosopher, my preferred dialogues are, you know Plato, Platon. You know, late Plato's dialogues, how they look. One guy talks all the time, and the other guy just says so every ten minutes by Zeus. Yes, Socrates, so it is, and so on. That's the dialogue that I like, you know. So just to go back, first elections and you remember that short debate about, I think you, uh, sir, started it, voting, no voting and so on, no? I think that, but don't, that in certain situations, non-voting can be, in certain situations, only an authentic act. For example, this caused me such trouble in United States when media misrepresented my position as if I'm for Trump. I'm not crazy. The guy was so stupid to marry a Slovene woman. I cannot. Be, no, but seriously, Trump is a scandal. I just claimed that the key event of the elections was how brutally democratic party got rid of Bernie Sanders, who was the only authentic moment. And they paid the price for it in losing the election. At that situation, and it's even worse, let's look at what now it seems will be the final confrontation in the French presidential elections. Marine Le Pen, anti-immigrant racist versus Francois Fillon who looks almost, with some respects, almost worse than her. In such a situation, that's for me the big problem. Would you agree? I don't know how this works in India, but in Slovenia. We who still remain want to be radical leftists, the liberal official left likes to blackmail us with this moral pseudo-moral argument yes i know we have differences but when we have this neo-fascist threat we should all stand together like in the united states you should vote for hillary and so on i think that this blackmail has some limits you know we should think very well to what extent we succumb to it. Uh, Second point, uh, catastrophe. I thought about another example which would nicely illustrate what you, Alenka, said. First, uh, this I think is what is false about all those apparently Hollywood Marxism, leftist movies which paint a new class society after the catastrophe. (laughs) Hunger Games, Elysium and so on, although in a way in some vague way they are progressive. They paint a clear picture where we are going if nothing will be done, a new apartheid openly racist society. But nonetheless, there is something precisely in the way Alenka described it wrong about them. But unfortunately, we, at least the European left, should be self-critical here. We, it's not only the existing ruling ideology that paints this thick picture of catastrophe the end of the world is the only alternative. In a way, much of the left follows it. For example, a film, I hope you saw it also, I mean that it was well-known enough, in India a couple of years ago, V for Vendetta, with Natalie Portman and so on, to evoke human persons who appear there. Uh, You know... I think this film is a symbol of what is wrong with today's left. It ended up, you remember, with a triumph. The, the crowd, multitude, Negro, negri, multitude, Negri loved the movie, penetrates the police barricade, enters the parliament, people take over, and the end. As I like to say, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery. And it's a safe bet because she's already left that. Uh, For seeing uh, simply a movie called V for Vendetta Part 2. Okay, but what happens the day after? What measures does the new government take? Do they nationalize? Do they what? Here I see the utter misery, at least of the Western European left. If you look at it closely, they have some vague ideas which any fascist would agree with, about and the rule of financial capital, take care of people's needs, whatever, and some vague ideas of uh, respecting democracy, making the system more transparent. And I'm more and more openly opposed to it. Listen, I could hear a debate with my otherwise good friend, Janusz Varoufakis, who started this movement, Democratize Europe. And I asked him a simple question, to to which I didn't get a good answer. I asked him, okay, but are you aware that when in Europe there was this big debate what to do with refugees flooding Europe? Sorry, I'm for refugees. Sorry for using this offensive term. I told him, are you aware that if the European system were to be more transparent, democratic, Refugees would be thrown out brutally. Let's be very clear, in each country, undoubtedly, we can only quarrel about percentage, the majority of the population is against the refugees. In Germany, Angela Merkel, when she invited at least some of them, lost popularity, she will probably lose next elections and so on and so on. So, you know, it's not as simple as that, let's make uh, the system more transparent, What if, I'm saying something quite horrible, what if the the people are wrong? However, we interpret this being wrong, manipulated, but I doubt if they are simply manipulated and so on and so on. So things are not so simple. The fact is that, at least in Western Europe, the left simply does, cannot offer, And I'm not talking about legal details, but generally, a viable alternative, like what to do. I think that this is the reason for political correctness and all this moralizing madness. Moralization, as already Lenin knew it, always enters when you lack concrete politics. Uh, uh, The last point I wanted to make, introductory point, is about all those uh, uh, manners, politeness, and so on. You know what was the crucial point that interests me in what I was trying to make? Not only do we have prohibitions and regulations, but as Derrida, with whom I otherwise often don't agree, developed nicely in his reading of uh, Kafka, uh, the trial process, we have also prohibitions which are themselves prohibited. And that's for me the horror of our permissive times. We have maybe even more prohibitions than ever, but they are prohibitions which are themselves prohibited. Let's give you a simple example that I often use. Let's imagine what a nice dream that we are in 1937 in Moscow, its Central Committee, I sacrifice myself to the role of Stalin. I'm Stalin. I give a speech. Of course, you don't have a choice. You applaud frenetically at the end. Then there is a debate. Okay, one of you raises hand and attacks me. Okay, it's clear what will happen. The next day, the big question will be who has seen that guy alive, the last. No. Okay, but let's then say that another one of you stands up and shouts at that guy who criticized me Stalin telling him something like but are you crazy to criticize comrade stalin aren't you aware that this is prohibited that we don't do this in soviet union i guarantee you the second guy would have disappeared even faster than the first one so you see the point it's not only that it was prohibited to criticize stalin it was even more prohibited to announce publicly this prohibition and uh, it's the same with the wonderful example that you, Alenka, already used, this postmodern authority. Alenka wrote a wonderful text, did you already publish it in English, about Lars von Trier and so on? Yes. Ma'am. Okay, you will tell them where if they want. Uh, and namely, uh, uh, describing the contemporary permissive master. I don't know again how is it with you here in India, but in... Europe and United States. We have more and more these postmodern permissive masters. It's no longer a guy with a tight, uh, uh, tight uh, uh, tie, and you know you have to address him formally. He pretends to be your friend. You know, like Monday morning he comes to you. Uh, Did you have a good sex the last evening? How was it? Let's take a drink. But nonetheless, he keeps all the power. But you know, it's a master which dominates even more, exerts his or her domination, but it's strictly prohibited to call him, to treat him as a master. You have to treat him as a colleague. And usually they don't even like to be called masters. The popular term is coordinator, they tell you. No, I'm just too coordinating here. And... (laughs) To repeat you know, a story from one of my early books where I think I found the perfect example for this. Alenka already used a similar example with this uh, parental authority. No? Imagine you are a small girl or boy of, let's say, eight years. It's Sunday afternoon and your father wants you to visit your old grandmother. You, of course, detest it. She's old, senile, whatever. But then if you have an old authoritarian father, He will tell you what? He will tell you something like, and this would be, as Alenka put it, a good thing to do. He will tell you, listen, I don't care how you feel, just do your duty, go to your grandmother and behave there properly. That's perfect, I claim, because you will retain your, let's call it, inner freedom, you will be furious at your father, but... That's good for your long-term freedom and so on. Now, what would a a monster called postmodern permissive father do? He would not give you an order, but he would have told you something like this. You only go to visit your grandmother if you really want it. Just remember how much your grandmother loves you. Now, a child is not an idiot, and he or she will know perfectly what this order means. Beneath the appearance of a free choice, it gives you a much harsher choice, uh, uh, order. The order is not only you must go and visit your grandmother, but you must do it freely. You must really wish to visit your grandmother. So you see this nice example of how, and this is basically what also Alenka Describe as that situation, do whatever you want, etc, etc, where the apparent freedom of choice masks a much harsher, masks uh, a much harsher choice. So much for the introduction, where I brutally used the freedom. Now I hope you will be not too bored because the, my paper goes more and more difficult towards the end. Uh, So I will begin in an easier way with our contemporaneity at its most stupid, Pokemon Go. You know it. Pokemon Go, as you know, is a location-based augmented reality game for mobile devices, typically played on mobile phones. Players use the device's GPS and camera to capture, battle and train virtual creatures. Pokemon who appear on the screen as if they were in the same real-world location as the players. As players travel in the real world, their avatar moves along the game's map. This augmented reality mode is what makes Pokemon Go different from other PC games. Instead of taking us out of the real world and drawing us into the artificial virtual space where you just stare into, a screen, Pokemon Go combines the two. We look at reality and interact with it through the fantasy frame of the digital screen. And this intermediary frame supplements reality with virtual elements, which sustain our desire to participate in the game, pushing us to look for them, for the virtual creatures, in a reality which without this frame would leave us indifferent. Does this sound familiar? Of course it does. What the technology of Pokémon GO externalizes is simply the basic mechanism of ideology. At its most basic, ideology is the primordial version of augmented reality. To simplify things to the utmost, did Hitler not offer the Germans the fantasy frame of Nazi ideology which made them to see a specific Pokémon, the Jew, popping up all around and providing the clue to what one has to fight against. And does not the same hold for all other ideological pseudo-entities which have to be added to reality in order to make it meaningful? Like, you see a lot of suffering. If you are a religious, pop, 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 Pokemon God and you dialogue with him and everything becomes clear. So one can even easily imagine a contemporary anti-immigrant version of Pokemon Go where the player wanders around a German city and is threatened by Muslim immigrant rapists or thieves lurking everywhere and so on. But are we not generalizing here too quickly? Is the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory which makes us see the Jewish plot as the source of our troubles not radically different from, let's say, The Marxist approach, which observes social life as a battleground of economic power struggles. In Marxism, the secret beneath all the confusion of social life are social antagonisms and not individual agents, which can be personalized in the guise of Pokemon figures. That's why I think you cannot make a Marxist Pokemon game, because some of my German leftists told me, but this is not only Nazism why don't we play a Marxist Pokemon game, like you walk along the street, you see poor people and you see Pokemon which is a big fat banker. And then my answer then was, yes, and this big fat banker looks like a Jew or whatever, you know. Like, you know, ideology is already in this very, perso- in this very uh, personalization. So, again, to cut the story short, this is why I think Pokemon Go game is such a success. Of course, its first attractive feature, as I already pointed out, is that we do not have on the one side reality and on the other side the screen, like when you play all these big PC games, you, as we say, escape out of reality. No, you remain within reality. But reality is just supplemented by some features like your search for Pokemon uh, figures, which triggers your desire. But my claim is that this uh, structure, again, is the very structure of ideology. For almost, I'm tempted to say, thousands of years, our reality, the way we dwell in our social world, was structured like a... Pokemon game. You always need something. The enemy, phantasmatic, witches, God, whatever, which a virtual entity added to reality, which makes it uh, meaningful. And that's why uh, again, so this is for me, this is why this structure of Pokemon Go or structure of augmented reality is our future. It's our future because it was already our, our past. You know, often what we celebrate as the latest technology just brings out what was active already for a long time. So what has all this to do with capitalism? Of course, uh, again, this Pokemon Go frame, the frame through which through the screen, you look at reality. This frame, of course, is precisely what in psychoanalysis we would have called the frame of fantasy. And it's crucial to use here the term augmented reality. Because in Lacanian psychoanalysis, fantasy is not opposed to reality. Fantasy is part of our everyday experience, ideological fantasy. Fantasy is how Every, every day we perceive reality. One of you, by you I mean Indians, and I would be proud of that, Mystery something, sorry, I'm bad with names, maybe you heard it, developed a wonderful program at MIT called Sixth Sense, which basically uh, actualizes the same mechanism. It's relatively simple, but it already half works. All you need is a digital camera, a small projector, and through your uh, 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 cell phone connection with some uh, computer cloud, whatever, and it works like this. You look at something and your camera also looks at it, it recognizes the object and it immediately projects onto any flat screen, even onto object itself, the basic data about it. Like you hold in your hands a book and again, the mechanism works like this, the camera perceives it, sends the data to the, to the digital cloud, gets the information, go back, and you read it immediately in split of a second, second the storyline of the book, the latest reviews of the book, and so on, and so on. Why is this so ideology at its purest? Because, again, it's not here is the real world, there is spectral digital dreams, but reality itself behaves as a magic entity which announces, tells the truth about itself. And since many of our fantasies are sexual fantasies, of course, in my dirty old mind, I immediately imagined the vulgar ways this might act with a sixth sense machine which is adapted to sexual life. Like, now, I'm afraid to look at any of you because I will, like... I look at any of you girls, and then immediately it's projected onto her. She doesn't like Chinese food, but she likes Indian food, especially mangolasi. She, she likes fellatio, but not I know everything, you know, immediately. So, uh, you see, this is ideology. This idea of how, no, I wasn't looking at any of you. <laughs> the idea of how, uh, you see, this supplementing reality, which is part of our immediate experience. So, uh, uh, we can also say in a very general way that the spectra of capital is a kind of Pokemon figure which lurks behind the frantic activity it sets in motion. The activity reality, the way we see it when we are subject of capitalism, is always the augmented reality, the reality augmented by the capitalist fantasy. But we have to be much more specific here. Uh, Jacques Lacan's formula of fantasy is subject confronted with what, what Lacan calls objet A, the object small a the object cause of desire or surplus enjoyment and here the link with marx is crucial lacan begins his the 11th week of his seminar le non dupe air which is a wonderful ambiguous phrase in french it can be read as le non dupe those who are not deceived caught into an illusion are wrong and it's a beautiful dialectical thought of how sometimes truth is accessible only through an illusion, through a lie. Like if you look directly at things the way they are, you miss it. And the other reading, Le nom du père, Names of the Father. Okay. Uh, at the beginning, in his typical arrogant way, Lacan asks the question, what... Uh, what was it that Lacan, who is here present, invented? He talks like this is typical Lacanian arrogance. And he answers like that to get things going, object A. Object A. So it's very important. It's not all those phrases well-known of Lacan, uh, unconscious is the desire of the other, the uh, unconscious is structured like a language. He says, Lacan, my great invention is object A. Object A has a long history in Lacan's teaching. But it is Lacan's reference to Marx, especially to Marx's notion of surplus value, merwert, that enabled Lacan to deploy his definite notion of object A, object A as plus de jouir, merlust, surplus enjoyment. And I think it's clear in what way Lacan developed his absolutely crucial notion of surplus enjoyment with reference to Marx. So what is surplus enjoyment, or we can also use here Freud's term, lust gewin, a gain of pleasure. What does Lacan mean by it? It's not simply stepping up of pleasure, more pleasure, but the additional pleasure provided by the very formal detours in the subject effort to attain pleasure. Think about how much a process of seduction gains with its intricate innuendos, false denials, and so on. These detours are not just cultural complications or sublimations circulating about some hardcore real. This hardcore real is retrospectively constituted through this detours. What do I mean by this? Let me quote one example, which is almost my favorite one. I'm sorry if some of you know it. I used it once, I think, only till now in my books. Did you see another movie, which is a very modest movie, but this detail is ingenious. And from 15 years ago, an English, Uh, working-class melodrama, even relatively progressive, uh, called Brust Off with Ivan McGregor when he was still a working-class hero before he became a Jedi Knight and all those stupidities. Uh, Okay, it's workers on strike and uh, Ivan McGregor is an unemployed worker who falls in love with a girl who works for the enemies who are trying to fire the workers, but then they fell in love. But the point is this one. Once they have a date, then they flirt, and at the end, he accompanies her, he, Ivan McGregor character, ordinary minor, the girl, the wealthier accountant in the company, up to her apartment block where she lives, and uh, there she, of course, it's a sexual limitation, but listen carefully what she says. She tells him, Do you, uh, uh, would you like to come up for a cup of coffee? And he answers, I would love to, but I don't drink coffee. And she answers, no problem, I don't have any. I cannot imagine a more erotic exchange. <laughs> because, you know, apparently nothing happens. Coffee, do you want coffee? No, I don't have coffee, no problem, I don't have any, I don't drink coffee. But the, the effect is an almost obscene, direct erotic invitation. But you see the difference. It's wrong to say that in reality, she basically told him, would you like to come out and fuck me? Of course, in some way, this was it. But if he were to say it directly, everything would have been ruined. And I claim it's not just a question of politeness. I claim that this zero level of never existed. Maybe, maybe, even there I doubt they have their own rituals of seduction. Maybe with animals it would have been like that. But you always need this. Why? Because I will tell you now another story, the last one, then I follow the line, which was introduced into our circles by Alenka in some of her books, and now we always use it. This type of double denial, which nonetheless, that's the miracle. You do something, like she offered coffee, and then everything goes wrong. The guy doesn't want coffee, you don't have coffee, but in this way, through the failure, you reach your goal even more directly or rather in the only way. Uh, this is how <coughs> reality is eroticized and so on and uh, uh, not uh, through direct reference. Okay, this other example, I'm sorry if you know it, we use it so often, I'm already embarrassed to mention it. In Ernst Lubitsch's excellent comedy, Ninotchka, Okay, it's more complex but there is a scene when the guy enters a restaurant and asks, uh, can I have uh, coffee, Coffee, but please, just plain coffee, can I get coffee without cream, please? And you know what the waiter answers. She said, sorry, sir, we don't have cream, we only have milk. So I cannot give you coffee without cream, I can only give you coffee without milk. Now, if you don't understand Hegel, what Hegel means by determinate negation, if you understand this joke, you understand Hegel. Because this is what Hegel means by determinate negation. Although it's empirically the same coffee, it doesn't matter it's, if it's with, without milk or without cream. It's plain coffee. But it's at the symbolic level of its meaning, it's not the same. The coffee without cream is not the same as the coffee without milk. Negation is part of its identity. And I even know from my own communist past, a wonderful anti-communist, but modest, joke about this. Because, you know, under communism, although it was not so bad, but often, okay, they, they didn't have things that you wanted to buy in a store. And it happened to me exactly the same thing as this joke. I entered the store, my mother sent me for toilet paper, and I entered said, "And I suspect that they don't have, that they don't have toilet paper." So I said, uh, "Are you the store you still don't have the toilet paper? You know what? The, 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 the lady selling their stuff told me, "No, sorry, you're in the wrong store. We are the store which doesn't have uh, soap. The, the store which doesn't have toilet paper is, is, is across the street, and so on. you know like, like, uh, But I claim that." that uh, only in this way, through what Hegel would have called determinate negation, can you, in a way, eroticize the situation. And I cannot resist another reference to the previous debate, politeness and so on. Uh, uh, what uh, uh, politeness functions in the same way. You need it, but often, but it is superfluous, like it happened to me, I'm ashamed to mention it, but I was the bad guy. Once I was together with Judith Butler, and I behaved badly, I used some lesbian bitch dirty, okay, I was incorrect, I'm sorry, I was guilty. So I felt bad, and later I called her into her hotel room and said, listen Judith, I'm very sorry, I just blah, blah, I apologised, And she told me, listen Slavoj, I know how you are, no offense, please, you don't need to apologize. But you know what then came to me? But her saying, you don't need to apologize, everything is okay, was the only way for her to really accept my apology. If she was to say, yes, you really offended me, I really need the apology, this would really have meant that I was so rude that she is not able to get over it. So you see the paradox. My apology did work, but the proof that it worked is that it was retroactively proclaimed unnecessary. But as such, as superfluous, it was necessary which is why you can imagine with my dirty mind my reaction was immediately to tell her but I didn't oh if it's not needed then I take it back <laughs> but you see and again my point is that uh, eroticization works like that there is no zero level surplus is there from the surplus is there from the beginning uh, so, uh, again, now things will gradually get a little bit more complicated. What is this surplus about? It's a very precise paradox. Surplus, we have many surpluses with Lacan. Surplus enjoyment, uh, surplus knowledge even, surplus value in Marx. I think we even have surplus power in politics. What do I mean by surplus power? Listen. When we live in democratic state, especially the one grounded in neoliberal ideology, the way it was described by Aaron today in the morning, the idea is that government is just another contractor that we deal with on the market. Like Elections are like buying the best government, your votes are your money, and you select one group, to govern you with precise rules, what they are allowed to do. It's a limited contract. But I claim no public authority really works in this way. No matter how democratically self-constrained is, every power edifice, in order to function, has to include an obscene surplus. Like, officially, we are limited, but the message between the lines is always But you know, basically, fuck up, we can do whatever we want with you. And I claim that this is not just some kind of a totalitarian distortion or whatever. This surplus hinted at between the lines is a necessary uh, part of it. So uh, what Freud aims at with his notion of gain of pleasure, lust begin, of or what Lacan aims at with surplus enjoyment is precisely a surplus which is a... And I had other rituals like that. I'm not blaming uh, women here. So, uh, the process of this process of gaining pleasure gives us the minimum of how desire works for Lacan. It's never desire in its immediate object, but it's the very procedure of attaining the object, which of desire, which accounts for the pleasure provided by it. And if there is one... Hey, 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 where are you? Sorry, now I need my first clip. Sorry. Just put on with not too much voice Brazil. Did you see Terry Gillian's film Brazil? You get there a wonderful example of this forum becoming end in itself of bureaucracy. This is... Just put it on. This is a scene from Brazil where the uh, British comic post-catastrophic nightmare movie where the guy in a large office building... Look, these are bureaucrats. It's a wonderful scene because this group of officials, they imitate the ritual of ultra-efficiency, you know. The boss and others around him just efficiently running around, walking, Like do this That order That But it's clear That it's a totally Meaningless game the the no, Mr. Warren. Yes. This is facts? Definitely no. My name's Larry. Mr. Warren's Sam Larry. Ah, Larry. Yes. Boys. No. Okay. Mr. Uh, to have you all Yes. No,
1: no
0: ridiculous, Yes. 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 You like it up here? Yeah, this back back. We've got it. a crack it. team of
2: other decision makers. No, it's I'm expecting big things
3: too
0: complicated. Stop! Never see those. Between you and me, Larry, this no, no, DiMata. Tell records to get started. It's about to be upgraded. Ah! Okay. In India, when I was here the previous time. You are not so bad in this type of bureaucracy. Now, my experience at the border and so on was that you pretty much like your bureaucrats, all these formalities and so on. It, it, this is all the mystery of bureaucracy. Now, its goal is not to solve problems, but to keep the problems alive in order to reproduce itself. And uh, Basically, it's this type of structure which I claim no matter how efficient bureaucracy pretends to be. You always have this surplus enjoyment of enjoying the process itself. And we can go here, I'm sorry, this will be the last one. Just put the next one. Now comes a much tougher example. I'm sorry for the images at the beginning. This is Joseph Goebbels, his famous total war speech from February 1943. After Stalingrad defeat, Goebbels organized a big meeting in Berlin. To, to mobilise the people, people to the for the war effort. And just listen to you.
3: I'm
0: sorry for this. It's a bad version. I didn't get a better version. But wait till you see Gerber's himself. I'm sorry for this. Maybe one of the most successful speeches in history. Why? You know, after the Stalingrad defeat, the idea was let's cover the seriousness of it from the people, let's offer them hope and so on. And this was quite an ingenious idea by the horrible criminal Goebbels. He said, no, let's just confront them with full horror. No false hopes. No, because did you, uh, uh, did you if you listen to this, You know, the questions that Goebbels is demanding from the public, it's basically, do you want to suffer more? Do you want to suffer, you saw that beautiful Kantian almost formulation, do you want war? So total that you cannot even imagine how total it will be. And then if you listen, you can get it easily on YouTube, the whole speech. It even enumerates, like, do you want to have not enough food? People try, yeah. Do you want to work 12, 14, 16 hours per day? Yes, and so on. And there is no hope, nothing of, oh, then we can be sure at the end it will get better. No. When, and then, I'm so sorry, I wasn't able to isolate When people applaud, yes, yes, Goebbels, whose expression of his face during the speech is one of agency, you know, like uh, war, fury, and so on. At that point, it's perversion at its purest. The expression of his face is one of the strange passivity, kind of a perverted satisfaction, not joy, but joy in utter pain. This is Again, surplus enjoyment at its purest. if you want to understand what is Lacanian enjoyment a surplus over pleasure, it 's this gesture it 's a pure gesture of enjoyment, this excessive enjoyment provided by nothing but nothing but a renunciation itself. So okay, I talk too much, and I am I know, approaching the end, so now, when comes the crucial part, I will try to condense it. So, uh, uh, where where do we... uh, Capitalism, of course, is the greatest machine of surplus enjoyment. Always more, the more you renounce, the more you have it, and so on. Of course, this dimension of suffering, uh, pleasure in pain, renunciation is covered up. It's not open. Openly, publicly, uh, not, not fashion, sorry capitalism is, of course, a discourse of egotism, you follow your interests, and so on. But, but I claim that and this is, now brings us to the greatness of Marx. Marx saw this clearly. He saw this clearly where? Listen, I will just, I will really cut it short now. Just read the first sentence of the famous uh, uh, supplement to the uh, first chapter of Capital, The Fetishism of Commodities. I quote Marx, A commodity appears at first sight a very trivial thing and easily understood. Its analysis shows that it is, in reality, a very queer thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties." Are you aware what a strange thing Marx is saying here? It's exactly the opposite. Of what we usually perceive as marxist critique of ideology we think that ideology are some metaphysical illusions blah 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 but that a marxist analysis should reduce them to our practical reality real life production process and so on marx is saying here something quite different he's saying that no commodity appears as an ordinary object. What is mysterious about it? I produce commodities, I sell them to gain other commodities, or for money. It's all part of ordinary reality. But for Marx, the first task of critical analysis is to bring out, as he calls it, metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. And this dimension, which Marx in capital, describes precisely in Hegelian terms, in the terms of speculative dialectics, like you cannot really understand capital without references to Hegel. When Marx, for example, speaks about the passage from from money to capital, he uses Hegelian terminology, it's the passage from substance to subject. Value in the form of money is a substance, a neutral measure or just an intermediary instrument, like I sell something, I buy it, money intermediates. But with capital, money becomes the subject, as Marx put it. Capital is money which, as Marx put it again in a wonderful Hegelian way, with capital, money, money's relation to other commodities becomes self-relationship. Capital is caught in a circular movement with itself. Uh, uh, So, uh, just second, uh, so that uh, so yes, okay, let's go faster. I'm losing time. I know. So again, the Marxist point is that we. That's a crucial point. We don't simply have. On the one level, uh, we don't simply have, on the one level, reality the way it really is and at another level, ideological illusions in which we live. No, we have, of course, social reality where workers produce and so on, whatever. And we have our self-awareness, which can be even very realistic. But the true ideological illusion, fantasy, is in between the two. It's this fantasy of capital as self-circulating monster, which is precisely not what participants in capitalism are aware of. Uh, uh, look what Marx says. Crucial quote. If now we take in turn each of the two different forms which self-is-spending value successfully assumes in the course of its life, we then arrive at these two propositions, capitalist money, capitalist commodities. In truth, in der Tat, rather actually, however, value is here the active factor in a process in which, while constantly assuming the form in turn of money and commodities, It, at the same time, changes in magnitude, differentiates itself by throwing off surplus value from itself. The original value, in other words, words expands spontaneously, and so on, and so on. These are the theological subtleties Marx is describing. But you know why this is uh, such a crucial passage? Because, uh, again, when Marx speaks about fetishist perversion or reversal of commodities. He is not describing wrong consciousness, no. He is describing the ideological fantasy. In other words, commodity fetishism is an illusion, but it's in a way, Marx uses this beautiful term, an objective illusion. It's not an illusion of how things appear to you. We have. Three levels, how things appear to you, reality, which is simply working class, workers, blah, blah. But in between, we have the objective illusion. We have the phantasmatic structure of reality itself. So be very careful here. When Marx says in his elementary definition of ideology that in capitalism, nicht, or something like this, like they are doing it, but they don't know what they are doing. It's not the common sense stupidity that capitalists are doing something and idiots caught in ideological illusions, they don't know what they are doing. No, they know, don't know what they are doing means that they don't know what illusions they are following in their activity, like... To bring the paradox to the end, you are doing something and you can be well aware what you are doing even in a Marxist way, but you are still caught in an illusion because in your practical activity itself, you follow, obey an illusion. You see the paradox of Marx. Fetishism is part of reality itself. Fetishism is in the very social form in the very social form of what you are doing. There it is what Marx called the theological dimension of capital, which is why, to return to a very sensitive topic, uh, I was always surprised and I disagreed with this stupidity of, you know, how uh, today we live in an era of egotism, we need more uh, uh, awareness of higher values and so on. Yes, okay, but. This is not capitalism. An average capitalist, he is not an egotist caring just for his interests. Every ecologist will tell you that uh, our neglect of ecology is irrational precisely from the standpoint of let's call it natural natural egotism take for the survival of life. No, uh, uh, take, uh, taking care of the survival of humanity. No. Capitalism is religious metaphysical in the sense of you are following a certain path of fanatically dedicating your life to the multiplication of value and so on, even if you suspect that it will mean catastrophe for you even. You know, so uh, Marx's thesis is not of critic of ideology, that's the beauty, is not that. Capitalists preach about humanity, higher values, but in reality they are egotists and so on, but exactly the opposite. Capitalists think that that they are egotists, but they are not. They are perverted theologists, metaphysicians who totally pervert their life for their absolute capital and so on and so on. So uh, this this is why, again, Marx, uh, this is why again, that phrase that I quote as but in der tat actually things work like that. What Marx describes as happening uh, in der tat actually again is not as you would have expected is not the uh, is not reality but the fantasy because which fantasy, the fantasy of capital as Hegelian substance subject, capital self-reproducing itself, and so on, and so on. And here, I think, Marx is more actual than ever today, because today we live in an era of cynicism. And the paradox of cynicism is that cynics are precisely not cynical enough. Cynics are not brutal guys who care. Cynics are not aware of their... Cynics are in a perverted way much more moral, even religious, than they care to than they care to to uh, to admit. And now, uh, okay, uh, just two points to conclude, so that unfortunately I'm happy. First thing, uh, so again, fetishism as Marx. Another crucial point of Marx, fetishism is not for Marx in the hidden content. Fetishism is in the forum itself, and here I don't have time to elaborate it. Here there is an extraordinary parallel between Marx and Freud, because in a not often noted but absolutely crucial paragraph in Freud's Introduction to Psychoanalysis, but also in his Traumdeutung interpretation of dreams, he emphasised that, that the secret of dreams is not their hidden content, but their form. That is to say, the secret of a dream is not the the thought that was enveloped then in the dream form. No, we have a certain uh, uh, content, the dream thought. Then this dream thought is translated into this magic uh, language of dreams. But in this very translation, another unconscious desire is inscribed into it. Deciphering the dream doesn't mean translating it back into its content, but seeing the surplus content brought in, by, brought in, as it were, by the forum itself. And that's the minimal formula of dialectical analysis. It's never just a certain content expresses itself in a certain forum. There is always more in a forum than in a content, because. What is repressed, excluded from the content, articulates itself in the surplus of the form. So to get at the content, at what is the innermost core of the content, you have to look into the form. So Freud gives, I don't have time, I just have to conclude, Freud gives a wonderful example of a dream where a, a lady dream, a, a, a lady talks about some her maternity and so on, uh, relations with father, and the dream gets blurred, unclear. And Freud gives a wonderful reading when he says that this purely formal character, the images don't, get unclear, confused, is part of what she repressed from her content, which was she was screwing around, she didn't know who is the father, no. And this un, non-clarity confusion, is, of course, too traumatic for her, cannot be expressed in content, so you get it in the forum, in the very blurred uh, forum and so on and so on. So, uh, this point I want to make and then my last point, my very last point, uh, uh, which would have been that, uh, so again, uh, (laughs) sorry, Uh, uh, this Unconscious, which is the unconscious of the social forum, where to put it in cognitive science forums, I took this expression for Daniel Dennett, who means it as, a, as the Germans put it, in a, as a bad word. He says, criticizing some psychologists, that it is as if, apart from appearance and reality, there is a third level of real appearance of how things really appear, and for him this is a stupidity. But for Freud and Marx, this is the crucial thing. Unconscious is not somewhere deep in ourselves how things really are. Unconscious are is how things appear to us, but we are not aware how they appear to us. Because, for example, if you say, You know, Marx claims that in capitalism things are mystified, uh, uh, capital has a life of its own. But wait a minute, it's clear that no capitalist thinks like this. If you ask a typical capitalist, he will say, But where is the mystery? We produce objects, money is an instrument to facilitate the exchange of objects, and it's natural to want more money, we are all egotists, and so on and so on. There is nothing no theological mysticism here. Capitalist is usually a good old pragmatic uh, utilitarian. His unconscious is speculative Hegelian. So Marxist answer, and I took this phrase, Mladen told me about this. Mladen, do you know which some American philosopher or British said, gave the most profound that I can imagine critique of pragmatism. When he said that pragmatism is good enough for theory, but not good enough for practice. Because in theory it works nice, we be pragmatic, but a capitalist is pragmatic in theory. The problem is that a capitalist is not pragmatic in practice. In practice, he is a very dogmatic theologist. So, now, I wanted to conclude, if you allow me, two, three minutes. Uh, You know, I feel so bad that I propose this. Are you on some mysterious email list here? Then the only way to pay for my debt and guilt, all that bullshit that we heard before. I really feel the only way is if I send this text and you can distribute because I will not deliver it all, but okay, my final point is this one. Which is why the conclusion of all this is that you know we, you have to be very careful when Marx Describes this gradual mystification of capitalist production. First, you have C C, commodity money commodity, where you sell something that you produce to buy another thing that you need. Then you have M C M, but M with a virgula like money commodity, more money, the capitalist circulation, and then the utter mystification M MM, M, more M. For Marx, this is the ultimate theological miracle where material production disappears and it is as if all you get is money begetting, giving birth to more money. But, okay, okay, but it's totally wrong to read Marx as if he is saying that we should somehow touch the base, return to the zero level, it's all, no, for Marx, we don 't have this elementary truth. we just produce objects, but in this capitalist excess, a certain more fundamental excess, and this is what Aaron was talking about, the excess of business, of productivity and so on is inscribed it's inscribed into it. because for Marx. The fact that in, he makes this very clear explicitly, the fact that in capitalism we do not produce to satisfy our needs, but we produce in order to uh, to produce profit for capital and so on. It's not simply a reversal which we should bring back into, let's call it, natural state and produce just for our needs and so on. No, for Marx, the model of non-alienated production is that you produce just for the sake of itself, for the pure satisfaction of itself. And Marx's point is that this capitalist mystification is a mystified expression of this excess of productivity. So Marx is not a nominalist here. Marx is not a pragmatic realist. The whole point of Marx is to be, in a way, more idealist than Hegel. Of course, in a materialist way. More idealist in the sense that for Marx, Hegel, although he wrote wonderful passages in his reading of of Adam Smith and so on, Hegel didn't see the Hegelian dimension of capital, as it were. It was only Marx who saw it. In his theory of explicit of economy, Hegel was at a relatively primitive artisanal level, you know, Adam Smith, exchange, and so on. Marx's biggest achievement was to bring the functioning of capital to the level of Hegel's logic, to describe it in Hegelian terms. Again, it's an illusion but an objective illusion. it's very important today when, in reaction to our ongoing crisis, the crisis of capitalism, we think about that the solution is usually it's colored in neo-Keynesian colors, some kind of return to, like, we shouldn't just speculate, we need to, our production should be rooted in real production and so on and so on. No, that's the, that's the greatest illusion. If Marx is not claiming capitalist circulation is caught in its own circle, we must ground it in real needs, production for needs of real people. This precisely is the illusion of capitalism, that it ultimately serves real needs, real people, and so on, and so on. Marx is much more, again, idealist, not in the primitive primitive not galen, primitive, theological way, but idealist in the sense that, I'm returning to Pokemon now, he saw very well how reality, capitalist reality, and even reality as such, yes, this is what he saw with Grundrisse after 1845 when he returned to reading Hegel and seriously, that uh, reality itself needs a fantasy to function and that this excess is irreducible. Okay, it's unclear how much Marx was aware of this, but I think that precisely today when, as I'm so confused, there were so many without any irony important thoughts today, was it Aaron or Alenka or somebody else, said how uh, in a way it's only today that Marx's analysis of capital, as it were, encounters becomes fully valuable. We have today capitalism at its purest. Yes, but I think that's one side of the story. At the same time that Marx is fully actual, it's as if sometimes you have this when he speaks about the abstract circulation of capital, sometimes you think it's only today with all these future speculations and so on that reality is at the level of Marx's description. Yes, but at the same time as Hegel knew it well, when certain notion becomes fully actual, it's also the moment of its decay. Marx's victory is at some point also his defeat, which means we need also a return to Marx. To, to keep Marx alive today, we have to rethink it. What were his limits and so on. This is the only true fidelity to Marx. I'm sorry that I spoke too long. Here am I. That's what I was able to do. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Czizek. That was a very fascinating paper. You know,
0: in my country, sorry to interrupt you, but it will be funny. (laughs) Fascinating is one of the polite ways we are begging. You know, when somebody asks you, how was my speech? And if you want to say it was bad, without offending him, you have to. You say either it was interesting or it was fascinating. <laughs> sorry, no, I said no. Sorry. No,
2: no I, I wouldn't agree with that projection. Uh, but uh, Dr. Zizek, I wanted to ask you about a little bit more about this fatal attraction to surplus enjoyment and this pursuit of object uh, in the neoliberal zeitgeist. And how does this inform the ind- indeterminate structures of subjectivity?
0: What the, so, sorry, you jumped. A little bit too fast for me. What how, do you, how
2: does the pursuit of surplus enjoyment inform subjectivity today in the... You new
0: asked a very uh, good uh, question here. You know why, but the answer would have been a serious answer, very complex. Because, you know, by indeterminate subjectivity as a professionally deformed philosopher, I would immediately say this is the Cartesian subject, no? And already here we have again a unity of Lacan and Marx. A, for Lacan, he says something very surprising. He says that the subject of psychoanalysis, the Freudian subject, is the Cartesian cogito. So it's not some kind of a deep living substance with all my secret traumas or whatever. It's pure, empty Cartesian subject. And the same goes for Marx. Descartes' cogito, its social reality is maybe today's precarious workers only. It's precisely a subject deprived of all its substantial roots, links and so on and so on. And incidentally, I will make now a critical point at some of the post-colonial guys. The big question is, do we remain Marxists in the sense that we see with all its horrors this passage through The zero point of Cartesian subjectivity, which means this subject reduced to poor, as Marx said, uh, capacity to work, is this a necessary step towards some new freedom, as Marx put it? Or can we play a certain anti-colonial game and claim that no, the way to resist global capitalism is to refer to remain rooted in local traditions, which are again the last point of resistance towards global capitalism. I remain a Marxist here. In what sense? I think that it's totally wrong to perceive global capitalism as some kind of abstract universality threatening particular ways of life, and then if we stick to our local traditions we somehow subvert it I think that, again, I already mentioned, Kim, your big boss, Modi or other. First, I claim he is the guy for today. If there is a proof of anything in last decades, it's that capitalism is immanently multicultural. It works perfectly with different traditions. That's why I think all the – and you know who knew this? All true authentic fighters for liberation knew this in South Africa. Mandela, with all his limitations, warned all the time against this uh, this idea of uh, some Africanness, authentic African roots, and so on. No, he won. And it's interesting. There was only one political figure in South Africa who did follow this way of black authentic roots. It was Butelezi, the one who was paid and corrupted by the white apartheid. Listen, one of the, my most horrible readings was a brochure when I was young from South African apartheid government which is the most disgusting multiculturalism I ever read? They said we could give blacks the freedom to vote, but this would be horrible. Blacks have—I mean, it's disgusting what I will say now. They—they they write blacks have such wonderful local culture, hot, uh, Bushman, Hottentot, and, and so on. And if we simply give them the same freedoms as us, we will lose all those authentic cultures and so on and so on. I mean, that's today's global capitalism. They love local traditions and so on and so on. Capitalism works perfectly with that. Which is why I think this is what is happening today. That's why anti-Eurocentrism is so popular. Because today uh, capitalism no longer needs even democracy and so on. The capitalism which works better and better is like China for example. I love China in a terrified way. Why? Because. You know, once I had a debate with Fukuyama and I told him, okay, you won capitalism, but you have to admit one thing, and laughingly he admitted it. He told me, uh, I told him, you have to admit that, but communists, where they survived, are today the best managers of capitalism. <laughs> and it's true, who can do it as good as, I don't know, Vietnam today, China, and so on. So again, I claim that uh, that. Uh, this is for me, again, the big, the big choice. I don't think, again, that this idea of local traditions resisting and so on, Mandela knew this. My other hero, how is he called? Uh, sorry, Malcolm X, you know, Denzel Washington in the film, to speak in common Hollywood language, he was a great guy for me. You know why? Because, you know what does it mean, Malcolm X? X stands for the lost roots, no, they were stolen, from uh, sorry, kidnapped, whatever, from Africa like slaves, but Malcolm, so we have no roots, we were torn out, but Malcolm X's ingenious idea was, I paraphrase it of course, let's not get caught in that stupid game of, did you see Roots, Alexis Haley, the TV series, let's go back, search for our African roots. No, why don't we use the fact that we are deprived of our roots as a unique chance to build a new free universality, much more free and emancipatory as that of the white people. And he was. that's why, maybe he was wrong, but that's why he became a Muslim. Because... With all my criticism, I don't have any problem to to offend all religions. But I always liked one thing in Islam, this idea of Ummah, community. You know what it means originally? Look at it, it's very interesting. Uh, The other two religions of the book, that is to say Judaism and Christianity, are more or less religions of the family, social hierarchy, you know, family links. Uh, Muslim. Islam is fundamentally, uh, originally a religion of orphans. You know all this, you know how Muhammad himself, before he became blah, 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 he was an orphan. You already have this story, how is it, was Sarah, the wife of Abraham, when, uh, uh, no, he wasn't able to get a child, so you know that story, then Abraham screwed a slave. Uh, but, but, yeah, and then he was thrown out. Escaped. So that orphan is the original zero level Arab or whatever. No? So what I'm saying is that Malcolm X got this, that for him he wanted a new starting point, a community built from zero without any traditional roots and that's why I'm not a Muslim, I'm an atheist and so on, and I'm often quite critical of Islam. But what I'm saying is that this is the reason why, and now I will enter, and with this I will finish, the prohibited territory, ah, it's prohibited, but I'm, you know, I'm here to offend you, sorry. That's, if you ask God, why di, God, why did you create me? Ah, to offend you. Uh, that's why I'm here for Ambedkar against Gandhi, I'm sorry to tell you, because I read a lot of stuff and listen they convinced me for example do you know that gandhi in, in, in south africa before he fought for uh, he fought against british domination but my god read his texts i did it how he fought. his idea was not we are all equal he just wanted the indians to be admitted into the white section he explicitly posited black people as outsiders and so on. And that's why, I don't know if this is true, but when I was here three, four years ago, I met some, really the lowest one, the one who are uh, cleansing, cleansing toilets here, the lowest of untouchables. And they told me a wonderful thing. They told me, we prefer English. I asked them why. They told me not because of colonization, but because they told me the languages that we have here have the, all these social hierarchies that you mentioned before are so much inscribed into them that for us it's much easier to assert equality by speaking in English. Now you will say, but this is the language of colonization. Well, it's up to you to decide here. My, my point would be I always, I mean, I betrayed my nation in the same way. My natural language is Slovene. I only speak about private things like food and cheating and toilets in Slovene. Theory is in English, and I think that it's very ambiguous here, things. I think that, okay, it would be a typical pseudo-philosophical thing to say, to think clearly, you have to think in your maternal tongue, but let's say maybe, but maybe not. Maybe to really think, as Hegel knew it very intelligently, thinking always means Thinking against the language. This is a very deep insight of all true philosophers, that language by itself is lying, embodies all the prejudices. That's why Hegel, as pure rational philosopher, you must notice this if you know him, likes so much this play with words, ambiguities, because you must somehow use language against, uh, against itself, No? That's why, again, okay, I talk too much.
2: Okay, great. All right, I'd like to open up to the audience if somebody would like to ask if a question. If they have still, I like yeah.
0: this, if they have still the energy. Yeah, we know. have a few minutes <laughs> left, so we have time
2: for one or two short questions.
0: Ah, and you want to give me this three tips, pseudo-Buddhist answers. You know, like, you answer me a complex answer, my answer will be clap with one hand or whatever, listen to silence. Sorry, please, yes.
3: I have a very short question, you you said at the end of your lecture about going back to Marx and most of us in this room are either capitalists or very complicated capitalists Yeah. because we have all been corrupted by the system of capitalism and is there ever a way of going back? So uh, what would Marxism in the future look like for you if we, I mean it's not, I can't imagine it's possible to go back?
0: No, 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 I meant going back, you know that, there is a nice irony, you know this it's probably there. All the biggest revolution usually assume the form of going back. Look, the biggest revolution in Christianity is Martin Luther, Protestantism. And he thought that what is he doing is just returning to original Christianity. So I would have to go again into deep theory here, but you know, I don't think that there was a Marx back there who deep in himself really knew what he wants. I like here Walter Benjamin, who says, you know, those wonderful metaphors that that, uh, a true work of art, and I think the same goes for philosophy, is like a photograph film for which developers were not yet developed at the time shots were made. So it's only retroactively afterwards that you can say what it really meant. We can only we can understand today Shakespeare better than he understood himself. Because works of art, even great theory, they are open. I claim we can only today say what Hegel wants. And in this sense, returning to Marx does not mean returning to Marx the way he was. For example, the first problem, already the problem of working class proletarian. At least in Europe, to be a classical Marxist proletarian, you are permanently employed with a big company, okay, you are exploited, but at least you have your retirement settled, uh, 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 health insurance and so on. It's almost a privileged position, my God. We have, the first thing to do is we have to radically redefine who is a proletarian today. From uh, precarious workers to, I don't know, even I'm tempted to follow here, Fred Jameson, all those excluded from, from those from so-called rogue nations, failed states to unemployed and so on, we have to redefine it. Exploitation no longer works in Marxist sense, a proof that I always like to enumerate. Take a country like Venezuela, where they successfully screwed it up and so on, but nonetheless, if you apply dogmatically Marxist analysis, then... You are forced to say that, under Chavez, Venezuela was exploiting American and European working class. Why? Because the bulk of the wealth of Venezuela came from exporting oil and when Marx tries to prove in capital that natural resources are not a source of value, the example he needs is, he mentions is precisely oil so no, I'm not making this crazy conclusion. I'm just saying that already at this elementary level, I think it can be saved, but how? Marx's so-called labor theory of value. It's a very complex question which had to renovate all this, who is the working class today? Because, you know, as Alain Badiou once mentioned to me, in every historical epoch, there is usually one specific image of working class which somehow symbolizes the universal concept. In classical Europe, even more than metal workers, maybe, how do you call it, the idiots who go underground to coal coal miners, miners were maybe the symbol, you know. And it's a big question, what is today? So all I would tell you is, no, don't feel bad. And You know, the worst thing to do for a honest capitalists, if such things exist. (laughs) The worst thing is to go into, oh my God, I feel guilty, and so on. You will not help any workers in this way. You should just be attentive to what is happening today in capitalism itself. I simply believe, following different analyses, that Capitalism in itself with intellectual property, ecology, who will control biogenetics and so on, is approaching certain limits. And I don't think it will be able to cope with them. At the same time, although they are too naive, who they, people like Paul Mason and all those uh, Jeremiah Rifkin, you know, but they are onto something when they talk about cooperative commons and so on, digitalization. Something new is emerging there which, of course, capitalism desperately tried to reappropriate it. That's the whole point of Bill Gates. Bill Gates is not a capitalist. He is a rentier, rent. His profit is not... Bill Gates is meaningless to say that he is exploiting his workers. His money comes from the fact that Bill Gates privatized part of our intellectual commons. And we are paying rent to him, which is why, did you notice this, the price of windows have nothing to do with production costs. They are minimal. It's simply the question of market relations. So all these phenomena show how capitalism, I think, sincerely is approaching some kind of a crisis, not maybe the classical crisis, but simply the model works less and less. I already think that, for example, what is happening with financial capital today is more and more irrational. Or point two, what is happening with intellectual property, all the problems, copyrights and so on. It's clear that capitalism will, in the long term, will not be able to commodify fully so-called intellectual property. For the simple reason that the logic is totally different, if you have a material object like water, then if I drink it, haha, you will not drink it, you know. But with intellectual property, if I drink it and you drink it, the more wealthy it gets. It's a totally different logic where at a certain level, so, okay, I will not improvise it, but you see what, what I mean. I mean that, no, don't play this, this is for me the most disgusting thing, to play this charity. This is the image of today's capitalism. I am not, you know, like... Bill Gates is for me the model. You get 50 billions, then you get maybe 20 billions back, playing charity, and then you are the greatest humanitarian in the world, and so on and so on. Uh, no, we should step out. The, 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 the solution is not charity, the solution is to ruthlessly confront new challenges for capitalism. And so. It's stupid to feel, to feel guilty and so on, I think, because uh, I, I, I don't think that the, the revolution, and I don't mean it in this pathetic Leninist sense, but the necessary change, that it will be the old change of, you know, hundreds of thousands on the street, it will be also that. But, you know, if we have just that, then we have the problem V for Vendetta that I mentioned. But what happened then? I mean, the big, you know, or I'll put it in this way, don't you? I hope you will agree with me. It's easy to organize a big demonstration, ooh, we all cry, one million people there, we are all solidarity, but again, what happens the day after? What to do and so on? For me, the true measure of a social change revolution is not this pathetic moment of hundreds of thousands of us on the street, it's the day after, when things return to normal. How will ordinary people feel the change? And there, things don't look too good for the left, to put it mildly. You know, we get from one to another screwed option. Venezuela, I never trusted them, frankly. I, no, here my consciousness is clear. For 10 years, I'm warning that something will turn out bad. It, I never believed in this Latino-American populism. Listen, Chavez was Fidel Castro with money from oil, you know. As his friends, I had some friends in uh, Venezuela told me, Chavez wasn't really solving problems, he was pacifying problems by throwing money at them. What do we have as a new model? I don't know and here I'm trying to buy help from anyone, even from capitalists <laughs> like you, you know.
3: I'm not a rabid capitalist by the of the imagination.
0: And uh, no no, I have I have no problem. Again, you know, also when people tell me like, but how can you go to that hotel and so on, this I explode. I said, you know that this is typical middle class attitude. If you talk with really poor people, they say you have money, enjoy it, spend it, and so on. It's typical middle class guild that to show some totally irrational solidarity with poor people. You are not allowed to enjoy life, you know. You must suffer to feel more authentic, and so on, and so on. I found this this solidarity total fake. Ah, Uh,
1: I have two questions. Um, One is that the sciences have been enormously successful. I don't mean only physics, but also the life sciences and various (laughs) other sciences. Um, And they all rely on uh, variants of classical logic, uh, except for quantum logic, which Mm. is non-distributive. But other than that, it's all classical. So why do you expect uh, to get better results and insights by using a non-classical dialectical logic and a non-classical Lacanian logic, if you do? Mm -hmm. But from some of the earlier talks, I felt that's the kind of... So why non-classical? So that's one question. And the second question is, how do you see the future of automation unfolding with... Artificial- Sorry, what was the second term? Automation and-, and... No, automation in the form of artificial intelligence, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, biogenetics, and all of these uh, kinds of things which alter uh, the, the human situation in quite radical ways if they do unfold. Oh, so how this,
0: do you see that? This is a nice question. First, the second one. You know, I, I, I was just reading some books on it and, uh, uh, you know, there are two, three positions that I totally reject. The first one is this typically European uh, cultural conservatism. Oh my God, we will all be automats, end of humanity and so on. Then there is the crazy optimism people like Ray Kurzweil and so on, Oh, happy era, singularity, we will all be one mind and so on and so on. Uh, I try to avoid these extremes. So my answer is, uh, my, my first position is, I agree with you here, I have no problem, and my Lacanian, Hegelian orientation poses no obstacle here, that with uh, what is happening today with cognitive sciences, uh, biogenetics, and so on, is something that affects deeply our being human. Literally, human nature is changing. In what sense? In the sense of what till now we perceived as our spontaneous natural properties, we can, we can manipulate them and also the way our mind connects with external reality. For example, one mega important point of research is that we are more and more able to directly wire, connect our brains to the computer without any language, symbolic interaction. I even heard, I don't know if it's true, that Stephen Hawking no longer needs that one finger that he was able... Sorry. I know, it's there. It's, I have some German friends who, the good German Nazi totalitarians, you know, they know everything, they inform me on it. So this, I think, totally changes our human identity which is based on this. Reality is out there, here I am, free at least in my thought, in my mind. Now, on the one hand, we are ready with our mere thinking to affect reality. I think about something, it happens. But you know what goes out also goes in. That is to say, it also means that I can be up to a certain point controlled and it's very seriously developed. For example, I'm sorry if some of you know it, but this story, I used it two times, but at NYU and some other places, they are making these experiments. They already work with rats. You take a rat, they can connect with a computer. It's very limited, but it already works. There are neurons which give orders to their legs how to move. So you can literally, I was shocked, they showed me a video recording, you can direct a rat, play with it as with a remote, remote control toy car. So a rat is running around, you click, connect it and then you can direct the rat, how it runs. And now comes the most beautiful thing. My friends told me that they, also, uh, that they also did, but they don't want yet to make it public and so on, uh, the same experiment on humans and the result is pretty horrifying. Why? Because they were interested in this problem. If we do the same with the human, how will the human being experience that moment of now I am connected? Will it be, oh my God, I don't control myself? some foreign power to no the horror is that when they asked the human person you know they let they told him just walk around and then without telling him click click they directed it's very elementary just vaguely the direction where he was running he thought he was free he didn't feel anything isn't this pretty scary i mean you know no but i'm not a panic i'm just saying this is one thing that is changing then the change, although it's very primitive, then the genetic manipulation, change, changes of our... Pro- like, is it not... That's why Jürgen Habermas is in panic for years. Is it not that our whole conception of pedagogy is... Let's say we compete, you and me, It's not. it will not be that stupid post then, then I have to invite you for dinner or whatever. I it's simply that we, comp- for a certain exam, let's say that... You work like crazy, honestly, and I just take a certain pill or some biogenetic manipulation and I do almost nothing but through some direct way I learn it immediately and I win. But in a way it's totally unjust. So, you know, how, uh, like, uh, and what happens with our free will and so on, I think, I'm here a crazy optimist, that it's not as simple as that that even free will can be changed. I don't believe in all those experiments that now it's proven that we humans don't have the free will. All I'm saying is that it will affect deeply our identity. You know why? Because the entire human creativity is based on our symbolization and as all intelligent uh, 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 evolutionary biologists from Daniel Dennett onwards, but also there are other better, just don't trick Steven Pinker, he is a total idiot. The proof is that he attacks me two times but that's another thing. Uh, uh, will tell you, you know that language was created to lie. Language is by definition unilateral, redu- reductionist and that's what's the strength of language. So all those ideas I read now, is it translated here, it's ingenious. Liu 16 three-body problem, a mega, you should read it, a Chinese mega-hit now science fiction story about our contact with another civilization which the idea is this, that they have such strong electromagnetic waves that they don't need language. Like the waves radiate, this is why they don't understand what does it mean this is the first communication when they come to word disagreement, because they don't see the distinction between thinking and speaking. They said, but I think and my thoughts are immediately emitted out. But I wonder what this means, because then I wonder if even science can exist like that. Because, uh, because uh, again, our whole thinking... It's possible only in this, I claim, eroticized universe where you can lie, where you don't tell. Without, we don't exist as humans without the, ability, without the ability to cheat, to create the wrong impression in very complex ways and so on and so on. So, uh, again, I wonder, I don't know, but we should be genuinely open here. If our thoughts will become immediately, we are far from there although we are not as far as you can see. I read that they already can detect your basic attitudes, fear, hatred, whatever, and they are getting further and further. They are already at the edge of directly identifying some contents of your mind. What happens if we, in this sense, become transparent? And the especially interesting thing is what happens when, when we we uh, uh, went through this identification, when, uh, for example, if we are dealing with a Freudian subject, a subject who is divided, who has an unconscious, and so on, and so on. And to return to my previous joke about coffee which is without cream or without milk, I wonder if in this, uh, how do you call it, emitted, directly emitted through wave thoughts without language, can you distinguish the two? I, you can emit the thought coffee, but can you emit differentiality? Can you emit the difference between coffee without cream and coffee without milk, which is physically the same coffee and so on? One thing it's clear that the moment we have this transparency of thoughts, eroticism is out. And that is the clear dream, you have it already in the 1920s in Soviet Union, you know that the first Gnosticists were the Bolsheviks. There was a whole movement in Russia in 1920s where they claimed, even Trotsky wrote about this, where they claimed our task now is to create a new human being as it was again you, Aaron, you, I'm accusing you. You quoted that nice passage in your book on how this is the nice, properly Hegelian reversal of how liberation of sexuality usually ends up with liberation from sexuality. And that's the step that some Bolsheviks, not a minority, the own majority already did it. Almost the predominant theory in mid-20s in Soviet Union was that sexuality is the last fortress of bourgeois sensitivity. Like, in economy, we communists rule, in politics, we rule, but bourgeoisie, you, capitalist, you defined yourself, <laughs> sorry, still resist at that level. So the goal was explicitly to create an asexual being. And they provided very exact de- de- descriptions of it. They claimed it's beautiful as a dream. It brings us back to Cartesian philosophy, Malbrons, a follower of Descartes, who claimed that They claim that in communism, you will not be directly identified with your body. But now we have feelings. For example, if you were to pinch me, I would say, ah, it hurts. But for them, in communism, we would learn the difference so that a pain, we would not feel it. It would work as a screen, you know, when... It's too hot, you see the temperature, and so on. You know that even our feelings will be treated as painless indication, like the screen of a machine with numbers, that something is wrong, no? And Malbranche, this follower of Descartes, claimed that this is how it was in paradise. But that, you know what was the original scene? When Adam saw Naked Eve, he lost this distance. And he thought that he that he is now directly affected by objects, not in only this distantiated way. And now comes the beauty of the theory. I love this crazy theologist. You know what was for Malbranche God's punishment? Because uh, Malbranche thought, you have this line, find it already in uh, Saint Augustine. Uh, uh, he claimed that it was clear for us that we are not our bodies but the illusion of sexuality is you are directly immersed with your body. And then, already Augustine and Malbranche Faustin claim that the divine punishment is erection. God says now man is too arrogant, he thinks he is identified with his body, so I will give man, males, only an organ which he will not control, erection. It will happen when he doesn't want it and when he wants it, it will not happen. So I like this theory that sexuality with unpredictable erection is not human sin, it's punishment for the real sin. And I think this topic will become pretty actual soon through computerized sex and so on. I talk too much, sorry.
2: We have time for one more question. Yes, please. Could you please give her the mic?
3: <clears throat> uh, this question came to me when we saw the uh, clip the, the clips uh, yeah. the, the, the Nazi the Nazi uh, yeah the, So uh, when you talked of the um, the perverse um, the expression on on Gebel's But it race.
0: wasn't so clear here. Yeah, yeah. I have the photos. I wasn't able to catch it. but yeah, it it's kind of absolutely incredible. It's pure, excessive enjoyment. Sorry, go on.
3: Um, recently, I saw some uh, footage on on Modi's campaign in Banaras. And it's not been said very, very uh, overtly, but um, his figure as a man who abstains from sex is, he's married, but he's, uh, sorry, who is the guy? Modi,
0: Modi. Modi, Modi. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
3: So, um, coming from this Hindu concept of, you know, abstaining from sex, brahmacharya.
0: Abstain from sex. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
3: uh, it's not very said very overtly, but as a man who is, is, doesn't live in a married state. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if, and I am very, I am wary of, I am not directly comparing that situation because uh, there are historical and very specific Mm. serious differences in these two situations. Uh, But I am just, I wanted to ask if this uh, idea of renunciation, how it can be, um, you know, uh, connected to the surplus uh, enjoyment, you know, of the, you know, the image of Modi as somebody who doesn't have sex and therefore renounces. And how that is connected to the idea of surplus enjoyment, if it is at Mm -hmm. all, Mm
0: -hmm. uh, sort of. That's a good question because there is another variation. Isn't it that some of your yogis are able to do it? Namely that you then still have sex, but in a totally distantiated way. You know, without, this is what, but don't your yogis, maybe this is my perverse, ...puberty education, but your yogis are supposed to be able to do three things. One is to control erection, like if you are well trained in 10 seconds up, in 10 seconds down. The second thing I was able to do, I heard, is that you can ejaculate inside. And then it goes to your brain and you get some super bullshit. And then the third version, that you can control your penis so that it gets very plastic. You can even suck some stuff with it. And I always accuse my wife who (laughs) says, okay, there is a stain there, suck it. Like, do you expect me to do it with my (laughs) (laughs) penis like that? So what I'm saying is I don't know enough and that would sincerely interest me. How does this work? Like, is it purely distantiated you renounce enjoyment, or do you get what type of surplus enjoyment uh, do you get from do you get from it? but the basic validity of this idea that that renunciation you know this is a very unpleasant thought, for example, li- recently, I listened to a terrifying uh, report on how do you call that thing that even I, although I'm not a woman, don't like to think about it that clitorodectomy or whatever, you know. And the shock is that although it's a minority, I mean don't misunderstand me, I'm totally opposed to it and so on, but a minority of women not only accept it in some so-called backward countries, not only accept it as a necessary price for being admitted into society, but even in a perverse way, enjoy it. You know, this would be for me one of the radical examples of this, let's call it, uh, surplus enjoyment. And if there is, again, a lesson in psychoanalysis is that there is no direct healthy sex, that now I use, again, an expression from one of her books from Alenka Zupancic, he said that only through language Sex itself gets sexualized, because sexualization doesn't simply concern the subject matter directly, what you are doing. For example, again, St. Augustine claims, and he is right, although there was no heaven, that he claims Adam and Eve, of course, they had sex in heaven. But he claims it was just doing an instrumental job. There was no sexual pleasure. He said, for Adam it was the same thing as taking a cow, a plough, and to work at the field. It was pure instrumental activity without any of this uh, surplus enjoyment and so on and so on. So it's only through human sexualization connected with language that sex itself gets sexualized. Not only sex, also other activities. I, Challenge you, but I will not make it, it's too obscene to this, no, with you. No, I will not, it's too obscene, although it's very innocent. Let's say that I shake your hand. No, 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 you will see immediately why I don't want to do it. Let's say that after we shake hand, instead of me letting you go, I continue to hold your hand and just start repeatedly to squeeze it rhythmically. Won't you accuse me of something obscene?
2: I would think it's a bit strange, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, but strange, not just strange, like something dirty. You see how I didn't do, I would not have done anything directly, I didn't touch you in an indecent way. I just repeated too much the most ordinary gesture. I think this is, are for me, the zero level of humanization or situation. Or, for example, I think the Ur people, primordial, were probably Australian natives, aborigines. The most wonderful invention that I know is, is uh, uh, how do you call that? You throw it; it comes back. Boomerang. You know why? Because it's officially you think it's to hit the animal. No, but the whole point is to miss the animal. And then I spoke some people with some people there who know, and they told me the greatest danger is that you are not hit. You know, to catch it in the right way. This is pure surplus enjoyment. Officially, it's to hit the animal. No, no. The point is to miss animal and to catch it properly so that you can do it again and so on and so on.
3: Um, actually, uh, when this uh, film was going on, I was very much reminded of these campaigns that are going on right now with respect to demonetization, that we are supposed to take some uh, hardships which yeah. are brought on because of the demonetization for the larger good. Yeah, yeah. for the uh, know, uh-huh. yeah, So that... that and it's, it's a very extensive campaign. Lots of money is being spent on it, saying that this kind of hardship or whatever has to be borne for the huh. nation's good. And uh, that and this image of the the face of Modi oh, is,
0: yeah, in oh, the really? recent, oh, uh, so, which yeah, is, I yeah. think
3: uh, that sort of uh, no, triggered my question.
0: but here I doubt if I'm it's really, a larger renunciation, yes. you know. But here I doubt. I doubt if I'm really human because I have big problems with these repetitive games. Like I never understood why should I ski, you know, skiing in snow. Because my dear, you you are down. You go up on a mountain and then you ski down. Fuck you, why don't stay down and read a good book, you know? <laughs> I'm not quite human here, I think. I'm a little bit confused, you know.
2: Okay, I think we can okay. finish.
0: Thank you very much for your patience with a <clears throat> madman like me. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lavoie, and Alanka and Aaron, uh, three really, really fascinating papers. Tomorrow we uh, continue, again, 10.30 will be tea, we start at 11.00 uh, with William Mazzarella,
3: um, and then we'll move to uh, Faisal Devji's paper in the afternoon and conclude with Joan's paper in the, in the evening. So, I yeah, laugh,
0: it evokes in me the worst racist prejudices, like we begin. usually we begin with a talk and then teeth are in between, no? I had the impression but i love it that here basically you have here a tea session no and just to fill in time between one tea and the other you have an unfortunate (laughs) talk and i love this